I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Father, we recognize our frailty. We recognize our mortality. And I pray, God, that in light of that, in our lives, we place an extreme emphasis on eternity. Bless your word. May it be multiplied in our hearts and lives. Give us eyes to see and understand. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You spend 18 weeks training for a marathon only to develop a severe head cold three days before race day. You spend months planning and prepping for an outreach event in your local community, but it rains on that one day, and no one shows up, or even worse, it doesn't rain, the weather's beautiful, and still no one shows up. You spend years building your dream home, only to be called elsewhere by your work or family once it's built. You spend 40 years of your life working for retirement. Six months into retirement, you're diagnosed with cancer and you're given two years to live. You carry a baby to term, but give birth to a stillborn child. A drunk driver crosses the center line and plows into an oncoming car, killing all three college students And of course, the drunk driver walks away unscathed. A 25-year-old man from South Philly wins a million-dollar lottery ticket. A few days later, his body is found in the bushes alongside a quiet street. Together, these examples paint a rather frustrating picture of our existence. If you've lived a day in this world, you're acquainted with how frustrating life can be at times. Things rarely work out as they should, and when they do, it's only a matter of time until they don't, until something goes wrong. As Christians, we can be quick to discredit this frustrating, the frustrating elements in our lives by jumping too quickly to Romans 8.28. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but we can do it too quickly and essentially live in denial about the frustration that we live in time in and time out. There are things in life that are inherently and categorically frustrating. Things in this world often feel futile. What's the point? Prior to mankind's fall into sin, the question of what's the point was what you call a non-question. It would be comparable to asking the question, is that bachelor married? No, he's a bachelor. Or can that blind woman see? The the question itself 
refutes itself, doesn't it? And the same would be true for the question, what's the point prior to sin, prior to the curse, where futility or vanity did not exist? Pointlessness only entered life's equation after man's fall into sin. But what's the answer? Is there any inherent meaning in life? Is there anything ultimately worth living for that will produce the one thing we so desperately crave? Joy and happiness. That feeling of perfect rest. Oh, I bet you can figure out where we're going. If you turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes... In Ecclesiastes, kind of fits in with Sunday school, doesn't it? I promise you, Rob, I didn't just come up with this in the last 30 minutes. (laughs) Sunday school, we're going through James, and the first chapter in James deals a lot with the issues that are touched on in Ecclesiastes. Um, In Ecclesiastes, we find a man, a very wise, rich, and powerful man, identifying himself as the teacher. The word that's used... It has a range of meaning. The word is kahelet, and that's, that's what I'm going to be calling him just so you don't get something else in your mind. I want you to get kahelet in your mind because it doesn't just mean teacher. It brings with it the idea of someone who gathers people together, who says, I'm going to gather people together and I'm going to proclaim something to you, but I'm going to do it with a measure of authority. So he's an authority figure, right? He has authority. He's going to do it with a measure of wisdom, He has wisdom, and he's going to do it with uh, credentials, I guess you could say. And people are going to listen to what he has to say. So from now on, when you hear Kahelet, that's what needs to be in your mind. It's this teacher slash preacher slash um, sage, I guess, if you will. Um, And he's, he's essentially attempting to exhaust all aspects of life under the sun in pursuit of something intrinsically perfectly and eternally meaningful. And what may surprise you is that he doesn't emerge empty-handed. There is ultimately meaningful existence in our lives of frustration, and he finds it. Now, I'll admit, there are as many perspectives on this book as there are scholars in the field of biblical scholarship. So the chances are, if you have a study Bible, and you've only read this book through your one study Bible, you've looked at it through one lens. Now, if you don't use a study Bible and you just use the text of Scripture, you've seen it through your own lens, which, I mean, you got to admit, we're all biased to some degree or another. So if you looked at it through one or two study Bibles, you're only getting one or two flavors of this book. So I, I challenge you in our study for the next 13 weeks to look at it through different study Bibles, different perspectives, because you will find a whole slew of views on Kohelet's conclusion. And we'll talk about that as we work through it over the next 13 weeks. Um, I take one perspective, which I think is inherently optimistic, and that's not just because I have a sunny disposition. Um, I think it has credence in the text, especially when weighed with the rest of poetic literature. But again, we'll talk about that. Um, Another thing I'd urge you to do is maybe incorporate Ecclesiastes into your family's devotions. Um, and if, I'm not speaking against the King James, I'm not speaking against the King James Version, but if you've only ever read it through the King James Version, unless you make a habit of routinely speaking in Victoria-era English, all right, Victorian-era English, 
I challenge you to read it in a more modern translation. Uh, just because there are nuances in it that simply the idioms will fly over your head because we don't speak in Victorian-era English today. Whereas if you take a modern translation, it'll translate it as an idiom or a saying that corresponds to what we use today. So that just throwing it out there, take it for what it's worth. Um, but I think to properly understand this book, we need to first look at its relationship to two other books of wisdom literature because they're connected. All right? We don't just take this and pull it out of the rest of the wisdom literature category. They're all connected, and there's a common theme running through all three, and I want to share with you what that theme is. And we can see it through a lens, and I think the lens that helps us, that's helped me especially, is to see these three books as though you're on a journey of faith. In Proverbs, we're directed on how to walk the path. We're directed on how to walk the path. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So how do you get on this path, this, this path of faith? The fear of the Lord. It's the very beginning. And the bulk of Proverbs, of course, is a collection of pithy wisdom sayings. Um, the bulk of the book, that's what that is. And, and early on, we're confronted with lady wisdom, right, and her antithesis. Um, we can call her foreign folly, right? You, you, where, you, where you read about the, the foreign or strange woman who calls to men in the street and the simple go after her. And her bed is beautifully looking, but in the end it leads to death. That's foreign folly. But alongside of that, we're confronted with lady wisdom. And all throughout the book of Proverbs, you have this back and forth, right? Where you have the wise man does this, but the fool does that. The wise man does this, but the fool does that. Foreign folly, she promises uh, a bestial pleasure that often lady wisdom will choose to withhold for your own good, but it's still withholding something that is the forbidden fruit. We're told that pursuing lady wisdom will lead to life and that falling for her opposite will inevitably lead to death. And there's really what you could call a battle throughout the book of Proverbs between the wise and the foolish. And if you've read it, you'll recognize the back and forth. Here's just an example. It's to one's honor to avoid strife, lady wisdom, but every fool is quick to quarrel, foreign folly. Wise fool, which one will you be? Will you walk the path? Will you stay on the path of wisdom which leads to life, or will you get off the path and fall into foreign follies, snare, and trap which leads to death? A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. It's fitting then that in this back and forth battle throughout the book of Proverbs, um, we find in the final chapter one of the ladies emerging victoriously. Lady wisdom. Now, this is, a, this is a view I grew up holding to, and I've sensed, I don't want to say I've, I've renounced it, but I've backpedaled away from it from a little bit when I was introduced to this other view, which seems to fit with more of the style of poetry, biblical poetry in particular. Um, but we, most of us grew up looking at Proverbs 31 as, okay, ladies, this is what you need to be. This is what you need to be for your husbands. Proverbs 31, memorize this, okay? And if you're not going out early in the morning, going to the merchants and selling your wares and staying up late at night and sewing and knitting. If you're not doing all those things, you are not a virtuous woman. And I think, this isn't just me, 
that's an Americanized view of a text that was written 3,000 years ago. Because the, in, in the Jewish mindset, it wasn't so much, it was poetry, right? It's poetry. It's, poetry is designed to convey something while not at its core. At its core, there's a kernel of truth. But the way it conveys it is done poetically to instill in you a vision of how all of this is painted to look. So you have a battle between foreign folly and lady wisdom, and who emerges as victorious in Proverbs 31? Lady wisdom. And you have God's wisdom showing this is the victor. And now she's essentially, having conquered foreign folly, she's preparing her house. And it fits with the position that this is located in the Jewish Scriptures. You have the Jewish Scriptures divided into three sections. The one is the ideal established. That's where the Torah is, the first five books of the Bible. Then there's the ideal lost. And you can imagine what that includes. Um, the kings, the judges. Um, and then the third part of the book of the Jewish Scriptures um, is the ideal restored. And Proverbs is in that section. Where it's essentially saying, this is the restoration. And you see that, I think, quite clearly in Proverbs 31. So, Kohelet, teacher of Ecclesiastes, he agrees with Proverbs on one level. And and I don't think he's being unorthodox, although some theologians think he is. The theme in Proverbs is the fear of the Lord. At the very beginning, you see the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And those of you ladies who memorized Proverbs 31, you know that the second to last verse in the book of Proverbs is what? The woman who fears the Lord, she is to be praised. So, you have that quite the focal point, right? Where it's like from beginning to the end, fear the Lord. That's the theme in the book of Proverbs. And the theme of Ecclesiastes is no different. Over and over, Kohelet communicates the need for all people to fear the Lord. He even concludes, fear the Lord and keep his commandments for this applies to every person. Kohelet doesn't disagree with the theme of Proverbs. He simply says, I get what you're saying, Mr. Proverbs writer, but when I look at the world around me, things aren't quite as cut and dry or as black and white as you seem to make them appear. Well, considering this, Ecclesiastes and and Job bear much in common. So keeping with the journey of faith metaphor, we can say that Proverbs is walking the path and Job is something that we could call managing the dip or traversing the gorge. Again, the theme in Job is fear the Lord. Uh, This is almost undebatable because at the very center of the book in Proverbs, or excuse me, in Job 28, there is a whole chapter devoted to the idea. It's an interlude. It doesn't correspond with really the rest of the book, but it's at the focal point. So it's the idea of this is what the book is pointing to. And it's a journey of where is wisdom stored? You know, what is wisdom? Where is it? How, how do we find it? Proverbs twenty twenty eight concludes, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. And Job paints a similar picture. Just as Proverbs had lady wisdom battling against foreign folly, so Job, this man who was perfect and upright, who did no wrong, and yet is tested by God in a horribly tremendous way, What does he never do? He never curses God. He maintains his fear of the Lord. 
But you have, just like that battle in Proverbs, Job has an adversary as well, the Satan. God's righteousness essentially is on the line should Job fail. Because remember what Satan did? He came to God and said, yeah, you know, I've just been walking around, you know, seeing what I can do. And God's like, have you considered my servant Job? You know, he's perfect and upright, how he fears me and he turns away from evil. Have you considered him? And Satan was like, well, I mean, the only reason why he does that is because you've blessed him so much. Take that away, he'll curse you. And God says, all right, he's yours. And then that happens again, and um, Job Job loses everything except his wife and his life. Um, And then he's cursed himself with painful boils and horrible, horrible situation. We don't know how long it lasts, but it seems to last for quite a while. And so you have this battle being fought. God has put forward his best candidate, Job, and Satan is there trying to throw everything he has at Job in an attempt to defeat God. Because if he can get Job to curse God and die, then that makes God a liar. And if God is a liar, then he is no God worth trusting. But he fails. Satan fails and he's not in the picture anymore because Job never curses God. And then Job is still left with a question. One of the questions that's raised over and over in the book is, what, what about the retribution principle? Which is, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. Job, essentially, if you've done bad, then bad things are going to happen. Bad things are happening, therefore, you've done bad. And Job is like, no, I haven't done anything to earn this. I've done my offerings. I've done my sacrifices. It's not that he's sinless. It's just that he recognized that he had to offer sacrifices to cover for that sin. So he understood that. So he's like, there's nothing that I haven't atoned for on that front. I've done no wrong. So is the retribution principle valid? And will God fail in, his keep, in keeping his word? Well, we see the first part fall through. But what about the retribution principle? Well, if you remember, as the book continues, God comes to Job, right? And God says, who is this that speaks with words without knowledge? I love the King James at this point. Gird your loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and you answer me. Where God comes to Job in a whirlwind and says, buddy, I got some questions for you. And he goes on this list of where were you when I formed the seas, when I gave them their limits where they can't pass beyond this. Where were you? Um, can you, can you see where snow comes from? Can you discern its whereabouts? And, and then God presents his next two warriors to fight him, Leviathan and Behemoth. So now God puts forward someone to stand against Job and says, Job, if you can face Leviathan and Behemoth, you're right. I'm wrong. What does Job do? He repents in dust and ashes. God is the ultimate victor of the story of Job. And then what happens? God blesses Job beyond measure. Okay, that's managing the dip or traversing the gorge. Back to Ecclesiastes. Kohelet, he agrees with the conclusion of Job, that it will one day be better for those who fear God than it will be for those who don't. Listen to his words in chapter 8, verse 12. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before Him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God... It will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. He agrees wholeheartedly with the retribution principle as laid out in Job. But once again, he nuances it a bit. He says, it's not 
that simple in my observations. Bad things do happen to good people, and they don't wind up blessed like Job in this life. Job, you're kind of the picture-perfect scenario, but I'm seeing the exact opposite with my own two eyes. Good things happen to bad people, and they don't wind up beaten like foreign folly or Satan in this lifetime. You see, Proverbs is about walking the path. Job is about managing life's dip. And Ecclesiastes is about navigating life's maze. Kohelet says to the writer of Proverbs, I tried what you suggested, and it didn't work. He says about the retribution principle in Job, I've seen the exact opposite with my own two eyes. And you sense his frustration with those espousing a black and white religion or a get-rich-quick godliness scheme. Kohelet's goal is to violently drag his readers out of denial. Stop shielding yourself with aphoristic religious cliches from the real pain and suffering in this world that you experience but because of Romans 8.28, you say, it's fine, it's fine, I don't see it, I don't feel this frustration. Kohala is meant to drag you out of that and say, look at the world around you. This is bad, there are bad things happening. And I think as Christians on this side of the cross, this is good for us to do. Because we don't want to undermine the pain and heartache of people. We want to be with them where they are and not immediately jump ship to God's promises. Be with that person in their pain just as Jesus was with the world in its pain. Because oftentimes, you know as well as I do, when someone's in pain, they don't want to have all the answers thrown at them most of the time. A lot of times they just want someone to sit there with them in that. So he's saying, would you open your ears to your own cries of torment, of frustration? You know there are times when things aren't working out in your life as you'd like. And to the secularist, the person who says there is no God, he says, then everything you do, the good or the bad, the right or the wrong, the beautiful or the disgraceful, is utterly meaningless. He's essentially saying, if your worldview ignores, discredits, or neglects pain and suffering as a reality, you need to open your eyes to the world around you. And if your worldview ignores the fear of God and the real good that often comes from following His counsel and commands, you need to open your eyes to the world above you around and above. Throughout this book, you'll see that Kohelet focuses a lot on moderation. Like, keep walking the line. Don't go too far to one extreme or too far to the other. Look around at the world, but look up at God. Look around at the world, but look up at God. Keep that in tandem. He's saying, each of your positions is being too narrow-minded, too myopic. Follow me, and I'll show you how to navigate life's maze while keeping your sanity, and even more significantly, discovering a measure of of joy. Now, I used to understand the phrase under the sun to mean life apart from God, life lived apart from God. But I've, I've changed my perspective, and some of it has been through, um, you know, just learning more, experiencing more, studying more. Um, and so I, I, I see it not so much as life apart from God, rather, now I've come to see it as life in this fallen world. 
And some, some of you may, people have already taken that perspective, which is awesome. It took me a roundabout way to get there. Um, I always saw it as under the sun means if you're not a Christian, everything is meaningless. But there's always something in me that felt a little frustrated, like, well, even as Christians, we experience frustrations, and we don't see the full picture. So it doesn't quite jive. So when, when we look at the phrase under the sun, I think it connects to the idea of life in this fallen world. That's why we read Genesis chapter 3 to begin, to show that things have been consigned to a curse. I think there's three reasons for this that have convinced me. One, all people, including followers of God, experience life's futility. Um, the engine dies, right? Oh. That happens to Christians and non-Christians alike. Kohelet, an orthodox believer in Elohim, admits to life's apparent futility even for himself. And then another thing that I heard that just kind of sealed the deal for me is that Ecclesiastes, the way it's written, it seems to be formatted as almost a commentary on Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. Like you have the curse laid out in dogmatic detail, and then Kohelet, it's as though he's working through that curse, seeing how it's fleshed out in reality. So it's almost a commentary. You have pain and childbearing, which is going to be addressed in this in great detail. You have toilsome labor, which is harped on over and over again. And then get this, you know the word for vanity? Chavel? What does it sound like to you? Genesis chapter 4. Abel. Same word in Hebrew. So there's that connection there. Abel was the one who lived and then died. Boom. Just like that. The first introduction, first picture of vanity that we see. Um, and that's used something like 30 times. So it's for this reason that I see the frustrations depicted in Ecclesiastes as applicable to modern Christians who are still under the curse of sin, with one exception. We are on the other side of the cross. And so while Kohelet didn't see the full picture, while it was though he, uh, he was staring at a black wall and he could only hear the subtlest of joyous melodies floating through the plaster, we are now able to see through a glass darkly, right? We're no longer staring at a black wall with inaudible music. We can see a, a picture of the face of God in Christ Jesus. He invites each of us to examine the grungy, decaying wall more closely, recognizing that the closer we get to it and the worse it appears to us, the better chances we'll have of catching that momentary whisper of sweet melody emanating through the wall's ever-diminishing thickness. Ecclesiastes 10.19. You, uh, you say, okay, pastor, you say uh, Kohelet is inherently orthodox. What do you do with this verse? A feast is made for laughter, wine makes life merry, and money is the answer for everything. We'll get to that. But in about 11 weeks. And I hope by then you'll see a picture that's painted in such a way I, th I hope I'm doing the book justice. This has revolutionized my perspective on the book, and I pray that in our study together, we come to see the joy that Kohelet says is at our fingertips if we just open our eyes to it. Well, we're not going to get into it today. Uh, I had more prepared, but we'll save that for next week. We'll get into chapter one next week, and our plan is to do one chapter a week, um, really just hit on the main points of each chapter. 
And then I hope that this is an encouragement and a blessing to you to see that joy is there to be had, and it doesn't have to be an empty joy. A real, eternal joy is offered by the hand of our wonderful and gracious God. Father, thank you so much for this time we could spend um, kind of in your word, kind of dancing around things. I, I pray that even still your word went forth in power in the few sections that we read and getting the overview of a few books um, in, your, in what you chose to preserve for us. I pray that this study is um, eye-opening to some people and that it, it's heart-moving and maybe life-changing, um, that you give us that joy that we're promised um, and that we focus on it um, because it is there Um, help us now. Um, Thank you for your son's sacrifice and the memorial that we turn to now to remember that. Um, We love you, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen.